0: So a lot of people out there have this sort of idea um, that, well, people are basically good on the inside, right? Um, but let me tell you about the kind of kid I was. I think that sort of disproves the idea that people are basically good, right? My childhood is proof of a sin nature. Um, like, I'll give you some stories. I have I literally had too many of these stories to, uh, to go through, so I'll just give you, uh, let's see, two of them. The first one was when I was in third grade, I almost got kicked out of my elementary school because um, I told all the kids in school that I had an uncle or something. I don't remember the exact story, but that I had an uncle or somebody who worked for the Giants and I used to fake autographed baseball cards and sell them to kids and then spend the money on candy. And uh, I remember when I got busted, I was three or four hundred dollars into this scheme, which for a third grader is like a billion dollars. Um, And they got really mad, and all the parents wanted the money back, but my parents didn't have the money, and I didn't have any money. You know, it was a whole thing. Or uh, another time, right around that same age, my mom was working um, at a, a high school cafeteria kind of thing, and she was making all the food, and she would take the money home and count the money, and then take it to the bank or whatever, I don't know exactly, but one time I went into her box of money, and I stole a couple of handfuls of it, and I hid it, And uh, all of a sudden, I got busted with this money that showed up and um, uh, nobody knew where it came from. And then at one point, somebody stole some money from my teacher at school, that one actually wasn't me, and so everybody thought I stole the money um, from my teacher, and so just out of sheer um, survival instincts. I said, no, but I do know who stole the money from the teacher, even though I had no idea. And I just picked a kid from class, and he got in a ton of trouble uh, for stealing money that he, I don't think he ever actually stole it. Now, I'm kind of laughing while I tell these stories, but really, I was a terrible kid. Like, I was a horrible little human being. Um, and I could literally go on and on. That's not even telling you all the stuff that I did to my brother, Ben, or uh, anyway, I yeah, let's just say I was terrible. Now, today, we're going to read about the childhood of Jesus. And what we're going to read is that Jesus's childhood was vastly different from my childhood. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about the person of Christ. And we talked about how uh, Jesus was fully, well, the Grudem quote, the Wayne Grudem quote goes like this. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And we talked about that's what we believe about Jesus as a church, that he was fully God and he was fully man, both fully, both of those things in one person, and he will be that forever. And, in, and so in that sermon, we really, we focused mostly on the deity of Christ. And then we talked about how do the two natures work together? And what I said was, we're going to leave the humanity of Jesus for later on. Um, and that's what we're going to do today. Um, I'll tell you another story. It's something that people have been thinking about for a long time. How human was Jesus, even if they didn't know it. Um, so after my horrible childhood where I was like, if Dennis the menace was evil and not just mischievous, um, I went to a Christian high school and I had some friends at this Christian high school. And, um, uh, one of these guys I went to youth group with at church too. And one day we were talking about Jesus and, uh, my friend Marco asked this question. Okay. Let's just say you had a time machine. You go back in time and uh, you walk up to Jesus preaching in Galilee or whatever before the crucifixion, all that stuff. You just walk up to Jesus and you say to him in English, hey, Jesus, do you know what a Burger King Whopper is? And then the question was, what happens next? And oh man, like for three idiots who had no idea what we were talking about, uh, we really got into this, right? And I, honestly, I don't even remember what I said, but I I remember some of the answers, right? Like, of course he would know. No, he wouldn't, uh, you know, well, he didn't speak English, but he was God. Did he? You know, all that stuff. Um, And so we had this like vicious debate, and that same sort of a debate has been happening... Uh, throughout church history like how human was jesus what was jesus's humanity really like Um, i want to tell you about a book um so every year or not every year i have a a list of books there's probably 10 or 15 books on this list and i call the list my game changers these are books that i read and i went you know whoa i can't believe what i just read that's a huge uh, like that's a really great book and so these books these game changer books i read them uh, over and over and over again, not on any sort of a schedule, just as I feel like reading these books, I'd do it again. Um, one of those books was uh, a book called the man Christ Jesus by a guy named a theologian named Bruce Ware. I'll put it right there on the screen. I, uh, I actually have no idea what I'm pointing at. Um, so this guy, Bruce Ware, he wrote this book and in the next couple of sermons, Uh, just so that I don't get sued for plagiarism, I'm going to rip off a ton of stuff from this book. It's that good. I would encourage you all at some point in the next couple of years, while we're reading the book of Luke, go read the whole book. Um, Because a lot of the stuff I'm going to say, he'll say it a lot better. Um, It's a really phenomenal book about uh, the life of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. How human was Jesus? How did that work? So I'm going to try to explain some of that today as we read our text and we talk about Um, the childhood of Jesus. So let's jump into this text. Um, We're going to start in Luke 2, uh, verse 39. It said this, it says this, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So it says that they performed uh, everything according to the law of the Lord. If you remember last week, we talked about how they were at the temple and they did the circumcision and Mary's purification rites. And so basically, this is just the transitional verse. When all of that stuff was over, um, they went back to Nazareth in Galilee. What they don't talk about here is uh, the detour that they take. to Egypt that Matthew talks about, and I'm not going to get into that a ton. Uh, how the exact timeline works, there's a few different options. But basically, after the infancy of Jesus, where he lived partially in Bethlehem for a while, uh, he spent some time in Jerusalem, spent some time in probably Alexandria in Egypt, and then they moved back to Nazareth. Now, remember that um, Nazareth was this bow-dunk-nothing town uh, in the middle of nowhere Um, that didn't even have a Walmart. You know what I mean? It was one of these kind of towns. And if you remember in the sermon, we said this is a lot like the town Mackenzie's from. Uh, So Mackenzie, if you're watching this, is a lot like your hometown, even though I already forgot what that town was called. Uh, But anyway, uh, you know, this is a small town um, in what's the the Israelite version of the deep south, right? That's where Jesus uh, grows up. Verse 40, and the child grew and he became strong and uh, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So Luke tells us now that the boy Jesus, he grew up in three different ways. So from an infant to the man that we're gonna read about, he grew first, it says he grew and became strong. So Jesus physically grew up. And went through puberty and um, had, you know, developed muscle mass. And he he had a real, actual, physical human body, which means he got hungry, he got sick, he got tired. All of the things that humans experience, Jesus really experienced those things. The second thing that Luke tells us is that he was filled with wisdom. So, um, this is the intellectual growth. So at one point there were things that Jesus didn't know, and then he learned those things and then he knew them just like every kid. Jesus had to learn how to read at some point. He learned the alphabet song, but in Hebrew and Greek. And, you know, I don't know if they have a Hebrew alphabet song, but, uh, if they do, Jesus learned it, right? He sat down and he learned all of those things. He learned language, um, as a baby he didn't just you know pop out and sit in a manger and be like hey mom can you go fetch me an iced tea right he even though he was god he still developed like a normal human being so he had to learn how to talk he had to learn how to Uh, All that stuff, right? And then the last thing it says is that the favor of God was upon him. So he also grew spiritually. Jesus is, and Bruce Ware has some great sections in his book that we're not going to super get into today, but where he talks about how the faith of Jesus grew to the point then where he was willing to sacrifice himself on the cross. Like God got him to the point where that was actually possible. And it's really cool to think about Jesus's faith. Um, Not that it was uh, bad faith, but he had perfect, you know, faith as a perfect human being, but that faith that grew and he learned to to trust and depend on the Father. Uh, just like all of us learn to 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 grow and depend on the Father. Alright, verse 41. Um, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old they went up according to custom. So Passover. If you don't know the story of Passover, flip back Uh, to the book of Exodus you can read all about it and basically the story goes like this um the people of Israel were in uh Egypt as slaves and all the plagues had happened all nine the first nine plagues you guys know that story Charles and Heston right let my people go um you know although Moses wasn't a midwestern white dude but you get the point um Uh, and so the frogs and the flies and all that stuff happens. And then it comes to the last plague, the plague, the death of the firstborn. And what God tells all the people of Israel, he says, look, all the firstborn in the land are going to die because of this plague, except for yours. And here's what you need to do. You need to go and you need to take a spotless lamb and you need to take that lamb and kill it. Um, who is it? Was it Daniel and I this week? We're talking about the Passover story. And we were saying, I was saying, man, this is such a weird, like, imagine really being there right? That, you know, Moses didn't tweet this out and everybody read it. The word passed around from person to person. And so at one point you're just at your house or tent or wherever you live and somebody comes knocking on the door and says, Hey, here's what we have to do. I need, you have uh, Moses told so-and-so who told so-and-so who told me that we have to take this lamb. You have to kill the lamb and then spread the blood on the doorposts. And then when death comes through tonight, it will pass over and none of our children will die. And that's exactly what happened and then because of that, the people of Israel were redeemed and they were set free from slavery. And so the Passover story is the most important part of uh, the Jewish religion and the Old Testament uh, rites and rituals and festivals and all that stuff. This was the pinnacle, the freedom from slavery. And so every year uh, these folks uh, would would go to Jerusalem like in huge numbers <clears throat> to celebrate. The Passover story. Sorry, let me drink. And so Jesus now is 12 years old. And when we think of 12 years old and we think of Jewish folks, we think of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. But um, in this culture, those weren't a thing yet. That wasn't around. But the idea that a kid uh, grew up uh, at 11, or I'm sorry, at 12, was kind of the social custom already. And so imagine now from this point on, Jesus... traveling to Jerusalem uh, every year uh, to celebrate the Passover. And every year, because he's growing in his faith and he's growing in his knowledge and his wisdom, he's learning more and more about how that Passover lamb was pointing to him, was pointing to what he was going to do on the cross. And every year he traveled to Jerusalem, knowing, uh, at some point he realizes, at some point I'm going to travel to Jerusalem to not celebrate Passover, but to be the Passover. And so, I don't know exactly the development of Jesus. It doesn't say. But you can imagine that as a child and as a teenager, how heavy this weighed on his heart. This whole sacrifice of the Passover was meant... Uh, to be ultimately fulfilled by him. And so every year now he's going and he's celebrating uh, this meal with his family. Now, we're going to read about the meal and the time that he went to Jerusalem, uh, which was, I think, a three-day walk from Nazareth, something like that. So we're going to read about three or four days. I don't remember. Uh, We're going to read about this. So verse 43, and when the feast was ended, so they go to Jerusalem, they have the whole feast, everything is over. When the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him along uh, among their relatives um, and their acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay. So here's the million dollar question, right? How could Mary and Joseph completely lose track of Jesus? You're probably thinking, okay, if an angel showed up and told me, even though you know, uh, this, you know, the whole Mary and Joseph story, right? So this this kid is going to be uh, the miraculous Messiah baby. You think Mary and Joseph would keep an eye on him? And we that that's probably our first like gut feeling. And the reason is because we live in a culture of individualism. Parents are the only ones that are responsible for their children and uh we're not responsible for other people's kids and so this is sort of a western near eastern kind of a thing they really lived in a culture that thought it takes a village to raise a child and so in our western family structure they would be in a lot of trouble they'd call cps jesus would be in foster care this all seems absolutely crazy but anybody in the 1st century Um, especially in the Jewish culture, reading this would have had no problem with this. People were not raised by individual parents. They were raised almost by clans and extended families were much bigger groups that were a lot tighter than we are with our extended families. And so Mary and Joseph were heading back to Nazareth and they probably just thought, oh, Jesus is with somebody from our extended family, from our clan. And when they finally do realize that, no, he's not with us, They freak out, and they run back to Jerusalem. Uh, Remember, they couldn't text him and just say, Hey, Jesus, you know, I think it's hilarious how much we use texting, by the way. Like, sometimes Melissa will text me from the other room, right? Dinner's ready, or something like that. Well, we kind of take that for granted. But here, they didn't have anything like this. They couldn't call. They couldn't text. They had to actually go to Jerusalem and walk around and try to find where he was. Okay, this is the house we were staying at. We're going to start here Maybe he's at this house. This is the synagogue we went to. This is where we ate the Passover. Here's the marketplace and all that stuff. And it says in verse uh, 46, they finally do find him. And after three days, uh, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So the three days is one day traveling away. Then they realized, oh, Jesus is not here. They spent one day coming back. And then sometime on that third day, uh, they found Jesus. And what was he doing? Where was he? He was at the temple, and what was he doing? He was sitting among the teachers. So who were these teachers, right? These were the scribes and probably the the Pharisees. These were the people who spent their entire lives studying the law of Moses especially, but the entire Old Testament, studying the prophets. And Jesus was sitting with these guys, and he was listening to them uh, teach, and he was asking them questions, which was... um, uh, the normal form that a rabbi would use, a sort of a Q&A method. And you'll see Jesus do this, right? Who do people say that I am? Like he, he's asking people questions, you know? Well, why don't you give them something to eat? You know, we'll see Jesus use this sort of method of teaching. And so here he is as a 12-year-old boy, right, sitting with these doctors of the faith, and he's asking them questions. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what the boy Jesus was doing? He is learning his Bible just like everybody else. He is at VBS, and he's looking at the flannel graph, and he's learning the stories, and he's asking his Sunday school teachers questions, and they're, he's learning this stuff by discussing the text. And you can imagine that for the boy Jesus. These light bulbs are going off, and he's learning all this amazing stuff about his heavenly father. And he is just absolutely soaking in uh, the Old Testament. In verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So people are amazed at his understanding of the scriptures. Now, um, in this culture, that's a huge deal because almost every 12-year-old child to this point had a knowledge of the Old Testament that would make any of us look like a bunch of idiots, that would put any of us to shame. Um depending what school you're from and how you studied and all this stuff, there's no like one, this is how much a 12 year old would have known. But these kids, they studied the scriptures over and over and over again. And they memorized huge portions uh, of the scripture. And they actually had this one practice that they would do where a rabbi would say a sentence from the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't even have verse numbers back then. He would just say a sentence And the student then had to say the sentence before and the sentence after uh, the one that the rabbi had just said. Like, this is the kind of level of stuff that a normal kid would know. Now, here we have Jesus, and he's at the temple, and he's answering these questions, and it says that everybody who sat around listening to this kid discuss the scriptures was amazed at his answers. His understanding of the scripture was amazing, even more than what would amaze us, which would be any normal 12-year-old kid at this point. And so right in the middle of this, Jesus is standing there, and he's talking about the book of Job, or maybe he's learning about David from 2 Samuel 7 in the house of David, or we don't know what he was talking about, but. He's in the middle of this discussion. And then verse 48, his parents walk in. Um, Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So his, it, his, it says uh, his parents saw him. They were astonished, which literally means they were struck with a blow or like, like it says they were shot with an arrow. It was this uh, like this saying from back in the day. And they were shocked to see what was happening is they thought he was with the family and he's back here surrounded by teachers in the temple. And then Mary rebukes Jesus almost. Now, when I was a kid, my mom... Uh, my brothers and I, we used to torture our poor mother. I already told you how evil I was as a child, Uh, but we used to do things like we would go into target. And then all three of us would, there were three of three boys. Um, All three of us would scatter and we would go. And I remember hiding in the like racks of clothes uh, from my mom until, you know, the security guard is talking over the intercom, you know, John Brackett, please report to, you know, like that was my mom. Right. And then we'd get over there and we would get screamed at and what, you know, we would get yelled at and punished Uh, or whatever. So this is like, uh, you know, this is like that. But after three days, right, my mom would lose track of us uh, well, lose track. We would run away from her for a few minutes. And then the security guards would come find us. And she always knew we were in the target somewhere. Well, imagine not knowing we were in the target, but that we were just kind of in Daily City somewhere and that she had to go around and find us. So imagine the relief that flooded over her. And then just she was letting Jesus know how worried she was. We have been worried sick. And look at Jesus's response. He says in um, verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And so uh, Jesus says, I must be in my father's house. That's his answer. Well, why did you disappear? Well, of course, I'm going to be in my father's house. These are the first recorded words of Jesus. He almost seems surprised uh, that his mom was so upset. It's almost like, well, of course, I would be in my father's house. Now, let's look at his answer very carefully, bit by bit. First, he says, I must be. Not, I really wanted to be. There's a big difference there. It's not, well, I just thought this was a good idea. I'm sorry, I didn't know. What Jesus is saying is, this is where the Father wanted me to be. This is where I must be, because my mission is not to grow up and be a carpenter, but my mission is to grow up and be the Messiah. And to do that, I need to know the scriptures. And to know the scriptures, this is where that happens. The second thing, he calls it the father's house. Um, the translation there is fuzzy. Some translations also, uh, the Greek is fuzzy. Some also say um, that I had to be about my father's business. Um, either way, it makes sense. He's saying, I'm doing the will of my father by sitting here with these men and learning the scriptures. But here's the most interesting part of this. Now, he, he says, I must, be about, uh, I must be in my father's house. We kind of pass over that in this age, but this is huge. See, the Jewish folks, they thought of God as the father of all of creation because he was the creator. So in one sense, he's the father of everything. In a more narrow sense, God is the father of the nation uh, in sort of a national sense because he created the people of Israel. And he says, you are my people and I will be your God. But nobody in this culture ever dared to call God my father in a personal sense. Luke seems to be telling us something about Jesus. Mary said, your father and I have been worried, sick, and we've been looking for you. And then Luke shows up. Uh, Luke, in the way that he words this, it's almost like in Jesus' response, he's saying, yes, okay, but I was with my real father. Like I, my, my ultimate goal in life is to serve the Lord. And Jesus, even at the age of 12, had a sense of this. And what what he's claiming here is what we're going to read about um, next week or, uh, sorry, in two weeks, about uh, the baptism of Jesus. What God says, this is my beloved son. You know, you are my beloved son. Jesus is claiming that here at the age of 12, I am the son of God in a special and a unique way. Now, that's a lot of heavy things for a 12-year-old to say to his mom. Because he disappeared and she couldn't find him and she was upset. And so Luke tells us, Mary and Joseph, they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They they were completely clueless at this point. Okay, he's the... Like, but they're just dumbfounded. And I love that because that, that fact there is only a detail that Mary could have given uh, Luke. So Mary sat down, like we've said, she probably sat down with Luke and went over all the stuff that happened here. And she probably told him this story. And at the end of it, and she goes, I had no... I didn't know what he was talking about. I was completely baffled. Um, verse 51. So the story continues. Um, and he went down, that's Jesus, went down with them, that's his parents, uh, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus now was submissive, it says, to Mary and Joseph. So they didn't completely understand what was going on. But Jesus says, okay, but I'm going to submit to you anyway. Um after this misunderstanding about where he would be, he says, I'm going to submit to you guys as my parents. Now, quick sidebar about submission. Submission is a, a military term, and it has nothing to do with worth or value, but about position, right? So sometimes... Um, Uh, you know, you're in the military and you might be smarter than somebody who's ranked above you, but you still follow your orders because that's how the system works. Now, our, it's not about who's smarter, who's more valuable, whatever. It's just about who who has the rank. Um, Our individualism, our Western individualism, fights with every part of our being against this idea of submission so hard. We hate this idea. But the Bible consistently tells us that God molds us through submission, that uh, as we become more holy, we become more humble. And uh, uh, as we become more humble, we become more and more willing to see the to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. We see the value that submitting to other people has. And the part of us, the proud, arrogant, Western individual part that says, I'm not going to do what that person says, just sort of melts away. And Jesus here is a great example of this. Was he more valuable than Mary and Joseph? Of course he was. Was he more wise? I mean, it seems like even as a 12-year-old, yes, he was. Was he more godly? Of course he was. He was God. Did he still submit to his parents? Yes, he did, because parents are one of the authorities that God has placed in our lives. And so as a child, while still in his parents' home, he submitted to his parents. Um, and then the last section here, so he goes home, he submits to his parents, and it says, and Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So as the days went by, this is the second or third time we've read almost the same sentence. Mary is learning more and more and more about Jesus. And as it goes along, she just she's soaking it all in and she's more and more blown away by this kid. And then verse 52, the last verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So compare that now to verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It's almost like these bookends. It's the, those two verses are parallel. Jesus is growing in his wisdom, right, in his intellect. He's growing in uh, stature. So like I said, he's physically growing up, and he's growing, uh, the favor of God was upon him. That's his faith, Um And also it says the favor of God and man. So his faith is growing. And as his faith is growing, his reputation as just a solid guy, that's also growing. And so with our passage here, uh, that's our passage for today. What we see is a very human picture of Jesus, right? He grows up, he learns, he has a misunderstanding with his parents. These are all very human things. So let's talk for a second now about how human was Jesus really? How, how did the humanity of Jesus work? What was it like for Jesus to be a human being? Um, one of the most important sections of the entire Bible talking about this theme comes from the book of Philippians. And Paul writing to the Philippian church in chapter two, he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I would love to just spend three or four sermons parsing out that entire paragraph, but we don't have time for that. Um, let me just say a few things about this passage. First, this passage describes what we call, and we talked about a while ago, the incarnation, where God became a man. And the first thing, though, Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is still 100% God, who though he was in the form, which means like the exact same substance, right? he was in the form of God, so there's no deity being uh, removed from Jesus. The second thing that Paul says is that Jesus emptied himself. But in what sense? Now, when people read that phrase, they think, well, he took the deity and he put it over here. And he said, I'm not going to be God anymore. I'm going to be a human being. But that's not what it says. Do you see what it says is um, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, uh, uh, being born in the likeness of men. So he he. Uh, empties himself, but by adding something, not by taking anything away, right? He doesn't empty himself by losing his deity. He didn't stop being God at all, but he emptied himself by adding that humanity. Um, Bruce Ware in that book, The Man Christ Jesus, um, he gives two really great illustrations, and I'm just going to steal them. Uh, Not word for word, but the basic ideas. Uh, This is what he said. The first one is like, imagine you go and... Um, You go to a car dealership, which we just did, and it was, oh man, let me tell you, we traded our car and it got a different one. I hate car dealerships and being at car dealerships and filling out paperwork and sitting there and waiting and having to go find the guy. Well, what's happening now? Okay, well anyway, imagine you go to a car dealership and you're test driving a car and you sit down and uh, it's a very nice car and it's all shiny and new. And he says, yeah, take it out for a test drive. And you bring it back. And now it's all covered in mud and dirt now the the guy might say to you what did you do the car is all muddy but when you really think about it did the car change at all no is the glory of the car still there yes it is is the car uh just as great as it was before well yeah kind of it's just now it's got an extra layer of mud on top and what where it says is that's basically what Jesus did. He didn't take the humanity, uh, the deity, and put it away. The glory of the deity, he just wrapped it in humanity, right? So that both of them are there. There's the clean car underneath the dirty car, right? It's it's all kind of one thing. So that's one illustration. The other one he gave, and I actually like this one a little better, is he says um, he he tells a story. He says imagine a king who. Wants to better identify with his people. And so he pretends to be, you know, this is in a bunch of different fairy tales, I think. He pretends to be a beggar. And uh, isn't this a Shakespeare play, too, where he goes and hangs out with the soldiers? Um, Anyway, and there's a great Star Trek episode about that where Data, okay, never mind. That's completely off topic. But the king, he goes and he lives his life as a beggar. And he gets rid of his clothes, and he puts on tattered clothes, and he goes and lives in the street. And when he gets hungry, he finds food the same way that beggars do. He asks people for money, and he eats scraps out of the garbage, right? He lives his life not as the king, but as the beggar. And at any moment when he gets hungry, could he go and just ask the palace chef Uh, to whip him up some food yes but does he do it no because he's living his life as a beggar Uh, when he's hurt what does he do he just he wraps it up in band like he cuts himself he wraps it in the dirty bandages that everybody else does he could go to the palace doctor and say hey sew me back up and do whatever but he doesn't do that because he's genuinely living his life uh, as a beggar so at the same time he's the king But he's living his life as a beggar. And we're going to talk about this um, more in two weeks when we talk about the temptation uh, narrative. Uh, But what this means is Jesus really, even though he was fully God, he really lived his life as an actual man. And what that means then is he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when we read about um, all this amazing stuff that Jesus was doing right? That was the human Jesus doing that stuff. And he was doing it empowered by the Holy Spirit. So um, like take uh, the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter, let's see, the Pentecost is two. So I want to say probably the beginning of three. Peter and John are going to the temple and there's this guy there and he's lame. And Peter says, look, I don't have any money, but get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. Now is at any moment, is Peter divine? No. What's he doing? He's healing that guy in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the same way that Jesus healed people, in the same way Peter did, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not through his divinity, but through his humanity empowered by that Holy Spirit. And so I want to read to you this verse um, from 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Now, Ware talks about this verse, but I've had the same thought, right? He says, for you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you may also follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, when you read that verse, it says, look, here's perfect Jesus. Now go be like him. And that's not really fair, right? Our instincts are to say, well, of course he was perfect. He's God. Right? How can we be like Christ if he's God and we're not? And I think that that answer is that it's wrong. What Luke seems to be telling us is that the spirit of God upon the life of Jesus is the answer. Now, are we ever going to be perfect like Jesus? No, right? Well, I'll read this to you also from Acts 10, um, uh, 1038. uh, This verse says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, do you see that? It says, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit in a special way, and then he went around and did all this wonderful stuff because God was with him, not because he was God. He didn't do it in his divinity, but he did it in his humanity, empowered by the Spirit. And so the big question then is, how is it that Jesus could live a perfect life, the perfect life that we could never live? And for most evangelicals, our gut instinct uh, would be, oh, it has something to do with the fact that he was divine. Well, of course he could live the perfect life. He was God. Of course he could heal people. He was God. Um, in the book, Bruce Ware says this, that instinct, right? the instinct in much evangelical theology, both popular and scholarly, is to stress the deity of Christ. But when it comes uh, to the day-to-day obedience and ministry of Jesus, the New Testament instead puts a greater stress, I believe, on his humanity. So setting aside his divinity, he lived his life as a human. Setting aside the kingship, he lived as a beggar. He didn't access those divine rights, but he lived his life completely empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so where it continues, he says, the only way to make sense then of the fact that Jesus came in the power of the spirit is to understand that he lived his life fundamentally as a man. And as such, he relied on the spirit to provide the power, grace, knowledge, wisdom, direction, and enablement he needed moment by moment and day by day to fulfill the mission the father sent him to accomplish. So in the old Testament, there's a list of, uh, there's a whole list of people, a whole bunch of people who are at certain points empowered by the Holy Spirit for a specific task. Moses to free the people, Saul uh, to win battle, Samson, Elijah, a bunch of others. But for all of these folks, their ability to be empowered by the Holy Spirit was limited by their sin nature. But with Jesus, he doesn't have that sin nature. And so what he has is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to the max. And so as God with uh, in the flesh, right, it's almost a uh, an amazing story for him, right? It says in, uh, John three thirty four. John says this for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And then this is the key for he gives the spirit without measure. So Jesus received the spirit without measure, the complete filling of the Holy, literally filled to the brim with the Holy spirit in every aspect of his life. And part of that filling of the Holy spirit is what we read today as a child. Uh, Especially as a child, but through his whole life, Jesus was constantly growing and learning so let 's think back again to our text. How is it that Jesus was such an amazing student that he amazed these these doctors of the faith, these teachers of the law? What did he do? Well again, our evangelical instincts uh, are bent will tell us well it 's because he was God, of course he was amazing, of course he knew the Bible, he wrote the Bible. Well, in this chapter and in this book, Bruce Ware points this out. That's not the answer that Luke gives us, right? Luke two forty, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then fifty two, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and the favor uh, and in favor uh, with God and man. So think about uh, Jesus's divine nature. God is perfectly wise. Can his divinity, uh, his divine nature, grow in wisdom? No what luke is talking about here is the hum- human nature of jesus and in his human nature he grew up he learned things like uh, he grew physically he liter- literally he grew up like a human being and i think that's amazing because you know just being uh, foster parents and seeing kids grow up I, watching izzy let's say grow up has been absolutely amazing like one l- quick little stupid thing is the other day she walked up the stairs uh, to our apartment. Cause you know, if you've been to our place, we live at like the 200th floor of a building, uh, which is why it's like a thousand degrees in here, by the way, today. Um, anyway, Izzy walked up the stairs and she was holding the railing and she took each step, each stair with one step. And I thought I, I had a moment. I thought, man, I remember it was not that long ago that we wouldn't even let her anywhere near the stairs because she, we thought she was going to fall down. But literally, Izzy's body is developing, and she's growing up, and her coordination's getting better, and now she's walking up the stairs like a normal person. That's how Jesus grew up. He really grew up. And as he grew up, he was empowered by the Spirit. And if Jesus lived a life as the Spirit-filled Messiah, and not just the divine Messiah, but the the human, Holy Spirit-filled Messiah, you can see how that would apply to his learning and his growing. Um, one of the major works of the Holy Spirit that he does in our life is he lights up the Bible for those that he indwells. Like he teaches the Bible. As you read the Bible, you can learn the facts and stuff, but to really have a heart level understanding of this, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. And so there's a big difference between learning the Bible and learning the Bible with the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. And he takes this truth and he presses it deep into our souls, deep down. And that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus was not born knowing the whole Bible. He learned it. He actually learned it. As a boy, he sat in a synagogue in Nazareth with a scroll in his hand, and he he opened it up and he read the prophecies about himself at one point for the first time. And all the while, as this was happening, the Spirit, because he was filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God was teaching him. And so Jesus read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he starts to realize that's what's going to happen to me on the cross. He read Isaiah 53, all about the agony of the cross and the crucifixion, right? He was pierced for our transgressions, that whole section of Isaiah. And he realizes, man, that's what's going to happen to me. He read 2 Samuel 7 about the house of David and the Messiah that will come from the house of David. And he realizes the Holy Spirit tells him, that's you, buddy. He read Genesis 3:15 about the crushing of the head of the serpent, and the the you know you will bruise his heel and he'll crush your head. And Jesus realizes that's my battle with Satan. He's gonna hurt me and I'm gonna kill him, right? He read the prophets and all these prophecies about the Messiah, how he will come and he'll bring justice to the poor and the oppressed, and how he's going to be this uh, wonderful King who puts everything back together. And this boy, Jesus, read this stuff and he realized these passages are about me. He is Jesus in his life, was the perfect example of the kind of uh, we like the, the Psalm one prototype. He I'll read Psalm one to you. It says this: "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates uh, day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf uh, its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. the wicked are not so. they are like a chaff that the wind drives away. therefore the wicked, Will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in Psalm 1, we read about this guy who loves the word of the Lord so much that he's like a tree planted by ever flowing water, and the fruit on the tree is perfect for everybody to eat because he's so soaking up the scriptures, right? that's who Jesus was on this earth. The perfect example of this life of learning and growing and perfectly dependent and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And next, uh, the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about why Jesus became a man. We're going to get into the theology of how he represents us as the second Adam. But today, here's what I want you to think about. Jesus isn't just a person. Uh, whose example we should follow he's the redeemer he is god in the flesh he's the mediator and so some people will say oh he's just a good teacher and uh you know he set an example and blah 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 and our response to that is always no he's so much more than that he's like i said he's the mediator he is the redeemer but what that means is it doesn't mean that he's not also an example to follow he is still an example to follow now are you ever going to be perfect no are you ever going to be as wise as Jesus? Of course not. But does that mean that we shouldn't try to be like Jesus? No, this is exactly what we should be doing. Um, Bruce Ware puts it like this. Has it ever occurred to you how privileged we are to live on this side of Pentecost? How amazing it is that the very same spirit who was on Jesus has now been given to all who follow Jesus. So, Jesus lived his life empowered by the Holy Spirit, a real human being, a real human man. And because of that, he was allowed to represent us as the new Adam and uh, live the life that we could never live and then die death, you know, on the cross in our place, rise from the dead. And because of all of that, we are redeemed. And on this side of the cross, we are given the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at Pentecost was poured out on his people. Pentecost is a game changer. We now have access to the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to live his life and to do his ministry. And that means that uh, we should have lives that value the same things as Jesus. If the same Holy Spirit is empowering him to live life as is empowering us, then we should kind of look like him. And so as the the spirit works in your life, you're going to see a few things happen. You're going to love the scriptures like Jesus did, right? Actually studying and being in the scriptures, reading big chunks of the scriptures, having the spirit press the scriptures into your heart is going to be one of your favorite things. You're going to grow in faith like Jesus did. You're going to be others focused like Jesus did, you know, like he was. You'll submit to the authorities that God has placed in your life, just like Jesus you're going to love outsiders just like Jesus. You're going to look out for the oppressed just like Jesus. And ultimately, your life will look more and more every day like what we read in Galatians 5, which is 22 and 23. You're going to live this every day. Jesus embodied um, this section of Scripture perfectly. And us, although imperfectly, we still have the Spirit of God. And as a gift of the Spirit, this is what our lives should look like. And so I want to end the sermon today just by reading what our lives should look like and what this describes what our lives should look like and what Jesus His life looked like perfectly. So this is Galatians 5, 22 and the beginning of 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what Jesus looked like. And if we have the same Spirit that was empowering him to live his life, that's what we're going to look like too.